Rising Giants Network. Around six, we started seeing um, smoke coming out of a hangar, and I work around 500 meters away from the blast uh, site. Uh, and then when I found them, and they seemed okay, you know, there's a bit of relief. But then the only thing that you can do is, uh, for for me, it wasn't about. It wasn't. There was no fear. Uh, there was no nothing. Uh, I think uh, there's a part that is played by adrenaline. But the only thing that you feel is, uh, how fast can you can I get to the hospital? I'm 55 kilograms. I had a 92 kilograms on me plus the door, and I had to bring him down three floors. I was about to give up when I saw him, and I. I told I told to myself I would never be able to forgive myself if I don't push it. There was the ER physician. He was he was going crazy. There were so many people on the floor, on the benches, in the parking, trying to get stitched by by vets, by cardiologists, by gastroenterologists, and it was it was a horror scene. I thought it was an earthquake. And then my friend standing near the window said that that was probably a helicopter. And then the next thing I remember, I was on the floor, and there was dust all around me, and screaming. And I remember that my heart dropped at that moment. Like I just felt, oh, this is Lebanon. I'm Linda Tamim, and from the Rising Giants Network, this is the Beirut Blast. This podcast doesn't only recall the trauma lived by Beirut residents on August 4, 2020. It's also an opportunity to reflect on the year past, to mourn our loved ones, and to tell our story. And most importantly, never to forget. As a journalist working in Beirut, I was on the ground covering the events from the day of the explosion onwards. I witnessed destruction, trauma, and death. I've met with people who lost loved ones, whose homes were destroyed, and whose hopes and dreams were shattered. I spoke to many who, driven by desperation, were trying the impossible to leave Lebanon, whether by applying for immigration, by looking to work or study abroad, and even by embarking with their families on perilous journeys across the Mediterranean, trying to reach Cyprus illegally. The country has become hell on earth, they say, a jungle, a sinking ship, a place with no peace, a place with no safety or stability, a country with no future. Yet I also came across a few who are still holding on to the little bit of hope they have left in their heart. Hope that Lebanon is worth fighting for. Hope that someday they can finally build a country they will never have to escape. This is the story of August 4, 2020, told by the people of Beirut. People who came together and gave their all when they had nothing left. People abandoned by their government and left to survive the aftermath of one of the most powerful explosions in the world on their own. People I shared hugs and tears with, people whose strength I admire, whether they chose to leave or remain in the country. It's a story of loss, trauma, and survival. And it's also a call for justice, accountability, and closure. The content of this podcast can be pretty graphic and horrifying. There is no happy ending yet at least. 
This podcast isn't for sensitive ears or for children. If it's starting to feel like too much, just switch it off. August 4, 2020. Another hot summer day like any other for most of us living in Beirut. We had just come out of lockdown and we were trying to regain some sense of normalcy and go about our lives. The country was experiencing major power outages on a daily basis, and as such, I had rented an air-conditioned room in a hostel in Jemezi to escape the heat. Every evening at around 6 p.m., I would enjoy a cup of Turkish coffee on the terrace right facing the port. It felt so good to be so close to the sea, I thought. So close, in fact, that the only distance separating my building from the grain silos was the highway. The day before, I remember sending my mom a picture of my coffee cup with a port in the background, saying, Wish you were here. The economic crisis had already started at the time. The Lebanese lira was already crashing against the dollar, shops and restaurants were closing down, and many had lost their jobs. The few businesses who had managed to survive until then were eager to reopen. Just like everyone who was still lucky to have a job, I went to work that day. Fortunately, it's a 20-minute drive away. It was a busy day and I remember working later than usual because of interviews I needed to record for the morning show. When I looked at the time on my computer, it was close to 6 p.m. What am I still doing here, I thought, before calling an Uber. As I got into the car a few minutes later, I was completely unaware that a fire had broken out at one of the port hangars. My stomach growled, reminding me I had skipped lunch. And as I was thinking what I'd have for dinner, the last thing I could have possibly imagined was that 2,750 tons of ammonium nitrate were lying in that hangar, waiting to catch fire and explode. As I was riding closer to danger, Aline Kamakian was having a meeting with her staff right above Meirig, a charming Armenian restaurant she owns in Jemeze facing the port, just a few steps away from my hostel. She recalls the events so vividly. During the meeting, we had, we saw the fire because just it's just in front of us. We went out, the management and I, we went out on the terrace to see the fire. We called the firefighting facilities. They told us that they know about it and they're coming. And we started to hear the siren of the cars. So we went back inside to continue. We took a picture and we said that, guys, on Instagram, don't, you know, like, watch, there's a big fire coming up. When we came inside again and we continued the meeting, I, uh, I saw the fireworks. So I took my phone and went out again, and my operation manager told me, just don't be fool. You know, uh, you might have something on you. Uh, it's, it's dangerous. Don't do that. I didn't listen, and I went out. Bashir Ramadan, a young man who works as a lighting designer just a few hundred meters away from the port, also witnessed the scene. He was one of many I spoke to who claimed to have heard the sound of planes before the explosion. We started seeing um, fumes going up from uh, the hangar, and it was like gray fumes at first. And then a uh, few minutes later, we, st- we started hearing we really weird noises just coming from that same hangar and you know we at first we all thought like okay uh it's a fire uh you know maybe a, a little bit uh, a few minutes and they'll put out that fire so 
it wouldn't be something to worry about. But the sounds started to get more and more uh, intense and almost like uh, little bursts of lighting, if that even makes sense. Like cracks, you know, like fireworks. So we were just um, hearing this and it kept on getting more and more intense. And, uh, you know, people were just going up to the roof of, uh, of the place, of the building, just to see what is happening. Okay, because it looked like something's about to explode, something's about to happen. Uh, something really bad was about to happen. Personally, I remember seeing a pink reflection in the clouds myself. The fireworks Aline and Bashir were talking about, of course, but how could I have known? What could that be, I thought? It's too early for wedding projectors, and the sun is still out. But that's all I could manage to think before I heard it. The loudest, most deafening sound I had ever heard. At that point, I had gotten closer to the port, close enough to feel the car shaking and the entire world crumbling around me. My left ear hurt, and it did for the three weeks that followed. But luckily, I was unharmed, and what I felt was nothing compared to what Aline and Bashir witnessed, being only a few hundred meters away from the blast site. I covered myself behind the water tank, and it was like a big earthquake. Very, very hot wind, very bad smell. I didn't know what's going on, but it was big. I, I felt like my inside was exploding, like my hair, like my skin was burning, literally that much was hot. When the explosion finished and I tried to stood up, it was raining on me, stuff from the port. Everything was falling on me. It was dark brown with yellow colors, dust everywhere. All the alarm was there. I, I, I didn't, I couldn't see even my fingers. I, I couldn't see in front of me. This massive white noise and this big blast just erupted and everything blew up. I was on my desk and I, I, was, I was standing up and I'm just trying to see what is happening. It knocked me back to the wall and I went down. So I was... Uh, I had both my hands over my head. It was unconsciously. I just did that, you know, just uh, not to get hurt. So once this happened, I was unconscious for a few minutes. And then when I opened my eyes, everything, everything was destroyed. Everything was on the floor, you know, um, the the roof, the, the chairs, the tables, the the ceiling, the the glass and the whole area outside was gray and we all did not know what the hell just happened. Head down, heart pounding, I had grabbed onto the seat in front of me. I don't remember feeling so vulnerable, so unsafe. Israel is attacking, I thought, as flashbacks from the 2006 war rushed through my head. I remember the sound of bombs, but it was nowhere near as powerful as what I had just heard. Could another one be coming? Where will they strike? Is that it for me? Should we park and hide? Should we keep driving? So many questions I had no answers to. The driver was visibly as panicked and confused as I was, and as if he could read my mind, he asked me what to do. I had gone live on Instagram at that moment, 
and as I was filming the giant pink cloud rising above the port, I replied, keep driving. As we drove towards Jamezi, I had no idea what was awaiting me. And back then, I couldn't have possibly guessed that the place I had called home for the past five years was gone. Just a street above my hostel, three-year-old Alexandra Najjar was playing with her dolls when the blast happened. Her mother Tracy, who had also heard very loud plane sounds right before the explosion, painfully recalled the events. I tried to pick up Lexu that was on the floor, and the blast happened. So we were both, uh, you know, uh, propelled against a wall. Uh, she hit her head, and then I covered her, and I woke up like 15 minutes later. I don't remember. We don't know, actually. 10, 15, 20, uh, with three three doors on my head, uh, the first ceiling and the ACs, and uh, Lexu was under me, so I thought, you know, she was fine. But little Alexandra was not okay, and neither was Tracy. Both had sustained several injuries, and they urgently needed medical care. Tracy and her husband, Paul, carried their daughter six flights down the stairs and tried to reach the closest hospital. So we went down to the road. Uh, we hurried to the first hospital that is actually facing our home, that is Rosal Hospital. Yeah. Uh, it was completely destroyed. So we walked to the, the, the Red Cross uh, that is, you know, in the middle of Jamaica. It was destroyed. And... Then at this moment, I couldn't walk anymore uh, because I had uh, broken ribs, broken vertebras, a lung that was injured, broken finger. I mean, a lot of things. So I couldn't walk anymore. And your face had doubled? My face had doubled, yes. So I thought, well, just take Lexu and run to the hospital, to another hospital. I can't. Meanwhile, Aline was busy looking for her staff members and making sure everyone was okay. Luckily, they had all survived, but not without damage. Some had head concussions, some lost their hearing, others lost their eye, their fingers. But the one in the most critical condition was Julien, Aline's financial controller. She knew she had to save him. This is where I found my financial controller, Julien, in an extreme bad situation. His left eye was out. He had an extreme bleeding on his right hand. His face was all kind of burned and blood everywhere. I had to put his eyes back to stop the bleeding of his right hand, which was like a very strong river. I was shouting on the others to call the ambulance. And they looked around. There was no more office, no more phone, no more nothing. Everybody was in blood. They were shouting and in pain and and I had to save Julien because he was the, in the worst-case scenario. With a lot of struggle, Aline managed to carry Julien, who was twice her size, down the building. Her priority was to send him to hospital, but she hadn't realized how bad the situation was until she made it downstairs. When I arrived down, this is where I guess I realized a bit about the catastrophe that we were in. Everything was as if a war scenery. Everyone was in blood half people on the street dead the other like pushing themselves running to hospitals we are surrounded by three major hospitals and none of them you know for you the hospital is a safe place 
you don't think one second that the hospital might be hurt. So we were trying to reach those hospitals. Cars upside down, half of the building hanging, some people crying, some people shouting, some people trying to hold on others, some people trying to save each other. I put Julia on the ground and I started to look how I'm gonna take Julian to the hospital. There's no way a car can pass. And this is where I saw some motorcycle guys coming. I begged one, put Julian on him, said he will fall. I find a cloth on the floor and I put Julian on his back and uh, rub him with this uh, fabric that I found. And I asked the guy, promise me that you will take him to the hospital. So I send Julian without knowing where I'm sending him. A street above, Paul was forced to leave his wife behind with a friend and jumped on the first motorcycle who offered to carry him and Alexandra to the nearest hospital. Unfortunately, the main ones in the area were destroyed and they had to knock on several doors before they were finally admitted. But it was really difficult. I mean, it was really difficult. Going from the hospitals to from one hospital to another, not being able to find help, people telling you there's no more hospitals, uh, you know, And you have a, a little girl that, that is uh, struggling with uh, to breathe uh, your daughter in your arms. And then you have to go from, you know, from uh, one hospital, then walking, then having to leave Tracy at some point, which was for me probably the... Uh, it's the moment when I start remembering it all is when we had to separate Tracy and I at the end of the of Jemaise, uh, because she couldn't walk anymore. And thank God we had our other friend Uh, that, that was there to, to take care of her and take her to, to the hospital. This is when I start remembering. And then, you know, having to take your kid on a, on a, on a scooter to the hospital. Uh, and then from, uh, from uh, this, this next hospital that was, you know, 90% destroyed to another, uh, a third hospital uh, where she's, uh, you know, she's uh, vomiting blood in the, in the ambulance because she's struggling. She, she had her... Uh, You know, probably from the ammonium nitrate or the, the impact of the, of the fumes, uh, wounds inside her throat. Uh, you know, you just go through with it. You know, you just, uh, it doesn't, you're not impacted as, uh, as someone would believe. It's just, you just want to get to safety. You want to get to the hospital. You want to get her to the ICU. And for me, it was the only, the only focus. And obviously, in parallel, at every minute, making sure that Tracy was okay. By that time, I had arrived in Maim Khayil, a few steps away from Jemaizi. I couldn't believe what my eyes were showing me. The area, which was once known for its vibrant nightlife, bars and cafes, was in ruins. Dozens of injured people were throwing themselves at our car, begging us to take them to hospital. Eventually, we had to stop driving as all roads were blocked. I paid the driver and asked him to take a fainting woman and her family to hospital, and I started walking. I was still going live on social media, my voice shaking as I was describing what I was seeing. Shattered glass, debris, mud, bloodied faces and bodies, people crying, ambulances, unconscious people lying on the floor, some being carried away. Were they dead? I remember thinking, then I realized I'd rather not know. It all looked so surreal, and for a while I realized I was living a horror scene, comparable to what one would witness in a war zone. It was difficult to walk, difficult to breathe. At that point, I still had no idea what had happened. And like everyone else, I was still in shock. But I'm lucky I wasn't anywhere near a hospital, as I don't think I would have had the strength to witness what was happening there. 
Aline, who had managed to send her staff off to hospitals on motorcycles, ended up touring each one of them to find her team. After long hours of searching, she managed to find them all, although some were still in critical condition. She recalls how horrible it was. This was one of the horror movies that I've seen. Walking between dead people, walking between people, shouting on you for help. The hospital was all overwhelmed. Parking was filled with people and people just shouting that I'm in pain, help. Seeing doctors giving, trying to keep people alive in the middle of the parking, giving electrical shocks everywhere, trying to do stitches without, without any anesthetic, without anything, just trying to do something. The smell, I cannot forget. For his part, Bashir, whose hands and face were bleeding, was taken to Jaitawi Hospital, yet another one that was damaged by the blast. Staff there were also overwhelmed, and he was turned away. I get to, to the hospital, to Jaitawi, and uh, I try to see if there's any nurse or anyone, any doctor that can help me because all the nurses and all the doctors, they were already helping people that had cuts, bruises, uh, uh, severe cuts and severe bruises. So I, there's this nurse that sees me and she starts um, shouting at me like, uh, you, you need to get stitched, you need to get stitched. And she's, shout, she's shouting in Lebanese, uh, so I, I told her, please do, please help me out. And she's like, I'm sorry, the only thing you can do is, is pray. Stephanie Yaoub, chief resident of obstetrics and gynecology at nearby St. George Hospital, was about to deliver a baby when the blast happened. Like myself and others, she thought a war was happening and was overwhelmed by the events. Luckily, she was unharmed, so she knew she had to pick herself up and find the strength to carry on. We had no idea what was happening. I was too busy to know that there was a fire at the port. I hadn't checked the news, and I just remember that my heart dropped. But it kicked in that we had a patient in labor, and a baby was just about to be born, and not for a second did I think about anything else, just that that baby needed to be safe. That's when we went into, you know, autopilot. Um... We moved the patient away from the window because we weren't sure. I thought we still thought that we were at war. We didn't know that it was a one-time explosion. I didn't want her to be next to a window. I didn't want her to be injured in any way possible. And she had glass all over her, shattered glass. Thankfully, she was okay. There was not one injury. There was just shattered glass, but there were no cuts. There was nothing. Um, and so we moved her away from the window. We cleaned all the glass off of her. And then we decided to pull her towards a corridor that was more protected. There was nothing that could really fall on her, nothing that could harm her or her unborn baby. So we had to get a more rudimentary tool to listen to the baby because obviously there was no electricity that had been cut. Um, and we didn't want to waste the battery because we didn't know how long it would take. So we kept using it intermittently. I think the shock and everything had affected the way that she was pushing she no longer she stopped pushing um so we had to i called the doctor and I told him the sun's setting um we don't have any electricity and if anything happens we need to be able to evacuate the hospital so let's come and deliver the patient um by helping her with forceps so that's what we did and thankfully the baby was born very healthy um and i think his cry just let us we all burst into tears because it was so hopeful. 
um, that he was okay. Baby George, named after the hospital he was born in, wasn't the only baby Stephanie delivered that day. This heroic doctor didn't have a moment of respite. So when she was finished, there was still a patient in labor. So we had to carry her down the stairs to the emergency ward. And obviously there weren't any medications. The medication room had been forced shut by a closet that had fallen down. So we picked up whatever we could, IV bags, gauze, gloves from anywhere we could. We ran down the stairs carrying this patient. I don't know where I got the strength from to carry a very pregnant woman with the help of someone um, into the backseat of a car. And we drove off to find a hospital that could take her. And I just, when people are panicking in medicine, they look to you to be that voice of comfort. They look to you to make sure that everything's okay. And so I just kept looking in her eyes and telling her, look at me, don't look around. Everything's going to be fine, just breathe. I just kept repeating that over and over and over again. But I was looking around and I could see so much destruction. I felt it was apocalyptic. And um, and you're driving through these streets that have become your home for such a long time. And you just see everything destroyed. And it's so crazy how everything literally gets destroyed in such a quick period of time. And we got to the hospital and her husband and her mother had followed us um, on a motorcycle. And at around 11 p.m. she was ready to deliver. So we delivered baby John. And um, that was the second miraculous thing that happened that day. Back in Jemaize, I was standing in front of the electricity building where I was reporting live for a foreign news channel. The sun had gone down and I was standing in the dark trying to describe what I was seeing. Chaos, destruction, black smoke. It was so hard to breathe still. Yet amidst this nightmare, I was so touched by the incredible amount of solidarity among people. That's something that stays with many of us until today, but so does the absence of authorities on the ground. Everything, when we went down, everything was black, everything was grey, everything was destroyed. Um, people were, I, I don't remember people screaming actually, but people were on the floor and there was nobody on the road. So nobody from the, I mean, the, you know, the security forces, people from the government, no one. There were people helping people. There were people carrying people. There were uh, people taking the, the, you know, injured people to the hospitals. When my battery died, I had no idea how I'd get home. My hostel was destroyed and I had to find a way to reach my parents' house. Walking was definitely not an option as I was drained both mentally and physically. Not to mention it was too dark to see where I was stepping. A kind man offered me a ride home and although I wasn't sure I could trust where he was taking me, I had no choice but to take my chances. Meanwhile, Bashir's parents had finally gotten a hold of him and took him to the American University Hospital where he could finally be taken care of. On that same day, I had three operations. One that's uh, under my eye, right under my eye. I had a major fracture in my skull that's uh, under my eye. Okay, and my eye was not sitting uh, in the right place because of the tr because of what happened. So, um, it the the whole thing hit me right in the face. 
So I had um, a major fracture under my eye and the skull. I had a really, really big bruise uh, on my neck. There was a big piece of glass on my neck and uh, my finger had a torn nerve that had to be uh, operated on. Back at St. George Hospital, Stephanie was still working relentlessly. The most difficult part for her was to see her friends and colleagues injured and not being able to help as her hands were tied with patients. With tears in her eyes, she recalls the one time she managed to sneak out to try to save one of her colleagues. And then the nurses came and they called me to the other side of the floor and they said that one of the practical nurses was not doing well. So we had to jump over rubble and broken glass and um, ceiling floorboards that had ceiling boards or whatever they're called that had fallen down and we found her completely unconscious on the floor and so then I went into doing CPR even though she didn't have a pulse and I knew that she had been really long gone I, I had to get an old monitor to see that if I could pick up just anything you know to keep her alive but there was nothing and what was also horrible is that I saw that her phone was ringing like her son was calling and um How do you answer that phone call and tell them that, you know, his mom has passed away? Later that night, Tracy was finally admitted to Rizit Hospital. She had an injured lung, broken ribs, vertebra and fingers. But nothing compared to the pain she felt when she received a phone call from her husband, Paul. Their daughter, Alexandra, who was being treated in another hospital, was in critical condition. I couldn't sleep that night. I don't think anyone in Beirut could. The adrenaline hadn't left me. I had to be reporting live on the ground at 7 a.m. the next day, and I had no idea where I'd gather the strength to stand up on my feet. I also had no idea how I would manage to pull a straight face in front of the camera. I don't remember feeling so beaten my entire life. But that's when work really started for me. In retrospect, I don't know how I managed to do it. Yet here I am telling this story. In the next episode of the Beirut Blast, I'll be elaborating on the aftermath of the explosion. I'll be sharing what I've witnessed on the ground during the weeks following the disaster, shedding light on the incredible solidarity of the Lebanese people amongst themselves. We'll be hearing touching stories from volunteers and humanitarian workers who are dedicated to helping others in these difficult times. After the 4th of August, you know, it gave me more hope with the Lebanese people because you can see this generation of love. And I'm in awe for this generation. I have a lot of respect for this generation. They did what we couldn't do. The youth on the ground were our inspiration. They were our fuel. Uh, seeing people just taking whatever they could find and going to the streets, taking to the streets and cleaning up and, and helping each other and people who came from all over Lebanon. You know, it was really overwhelming to be able to help people, overwhelming in a positive way and in a negative way, both at the same time. It was overwhelming in a negative way because we were asking all of our staff members to be offering help and helping others where they lived the trauma themselves, where their offices were destroyed, their cars were destroyed, their loved ones uh, died. 
So it was really tough on us to be able to help others and we have to live through our own trauma. It was our major therapeutic work that we've done with our team because working and cooking for 2,500 people with half wounded and the rest of the team was our only way to feel part of reconstruction. Our hearts go out to everyone who's lost their loved ones, their homes, to everyone who was forced to leave their country behind to build a better future for themselves. Thank you for listening to our story. Don't hesitate to share this podcast if it has moved you in any way. We need the world to hear about our fight for justice. Beirut Blast is a Rising Giants Network production. Written and narrated by myself, Linda Tamim. Mixing and sound designed by Bashar Najjar and Saad Kiswani. Beirut Blast is available on Apple Podcast, Anrami, Spotify, Deezer, Podio, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe and rate Beirut Blast on your favorite podcast app.